Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Yusuf. And I'm your co-host, Reese. And today we are here with Elizabeth Moller, Moller, and she is uh, an incoming student in, in occupational science. She's going to do a PhD over here. So welcome to our show, Elizabeth. Welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Sure. Um, so Elizabeth, tell us about yourself and what made you to choose to come to Western and also about your interest uh, in disability advocacy. Sure. So I am a, as Yusuf said, an incoming PhD student at Western University. And I have worked in the field of disability or in the disability space, I guess you could say, for my whole life, I would say. I'm, um, I live with a visual disability. And so my reasoning and my thinking behind wanting to pursue a PhD is really, to, I guess, because of my own um, experience with advocacy work and the need to advocate. So prior to coming to Western University for my PhD, I worked at Ryerson Magnet, um, and I was the project coordinator for inclusive hiring. Oh, and prior okay. to that, yeah, it was it's a really neat job. Um, loved that. And prior to that, I worked uh, in frontline service work at Balance for Blind Adults, where I taught individuals with vision loss how to use assistive and mainstream technology. As well, I was the community engagement lead at Balance. Um, and sort of prior to that, but also at the same time, I worked for the National Educational Association of Disabled Students or NEEDS, um, working in the inclusive education space. So I should back up there and say that inclusive education is one of my, my big passions. Mm. I currently sit on the Education Standards Development Committee for post-secondary. And why is that a passion for me? Well, as somebody that lives with vision loss, I have experienced navigating barriers around education from primary all the way up to post-secondary. And in my frontline work, I worked with a lot of clients who experienced barriers to education. So for example, one of the biggest barriers that I still experience, and it's certainly been exacerbated as we're now all using technology because of COVID-19, is access to platforms that are accessible with assistive technology. So what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, the platforms that post-secondary institutions, and for that matter, all educational institutions use, um, may not always be compatible with screen readers or braille displays, magnification software, or um, dictation software. And so one of the big challenges, of course, especially now, is how do students participate? So that was, that's was that been a barrier I've experienced my whole life, in addition to attitudinal barriers around education uh, from educators, service providers, and the like, as well as physical and architectural barriers in the education space. So that sort of fueled my passion around inclusive education and why I sit on the Education Standards Committee. But sort of flip-flopping a little bit to my PhD. Um, I am coming in, like I said, I'm very excited to be coming back to Western. I should say I'm coming, coming home, I'm coming back. I was a student at Western in 2010, 2011, and 2012. So I did my master's in occupational science and I'm coming back. And I'm pursuing a PhD in occupational science, specifically looking at how 
adults with physical disabilities who access direct funded attendance services, how that impacts community engagement and community participation. And so this is especially important given, given a couple of things. It's important because 22% of our population lives with a disability here in Canada, but right. we also have an aging population. And so that aging population will age into disability. So we want to look at ways that where possible, people can self-manage their own support and service needs at home and how that impacts community engagement and their ability to engage and participate in the community. What? So why am I why am I interested in that? Well, aside from having a disability and living with a disability since birth, I have two family members that live with disabilities that I support, and as well as several friends that live with disabilities that I, um, I would say, am an ally with in the disability space. So that's a very long-winded answer to your question about, tell me a little bit about yourself. <laughs> no, I'm super happy you expressed all of these things and you'll unpack them. And um, I already regret that this episode is 30 minutes, not long and not one hour, I know. But, but it's I'll okay. Gonna, my answer's a little snappy. <laughs> we're gonna make the best of it. And just a small follow-up um, uh, before Reese asks her question is, so you were here before uh, as a graduate student as well at Western, and is it true that you were also involved with stocks in some way? I was. The rumors are true on the streets. Uh -huh. uh, it, it is a true rumor. Uh, in 2010, um, it's a kind of a funny story how I got involved with songs. Uh, in 2010, I noticed several of the intersections on campus did not have accessible curve cuts, audible pedestrian signals, or um, tactile curve markings. And so as a result, I kind of set up to ask first of all, the Office for Students with Disabilities, what can we do about this? And they uh, basically said, well, these are the city's intersections, so you might want to talk to SOGS. So over to SOGS I went, not really knowing what I was getting into or who I was talking to, but throughout that conversation, I learned a couple of things. One is they needed a disabilities commissioner and would I be interested? So I, I guess I made a good first impression. But the second thing is that I actually had an opportunity along with uh, another member of SOGS to present to the city of London around the importance of accessible street crossings on our campus, uh, as we know, it's so important. Western Road is such a busy street, as is Sarnia Road, and we want to make sure that our students and faculty and staff and anyone who visits the campus is safe. And I'm pleased to say, although it was the day I graduated, those accessible street crossings, complete with audible signals, curb cuts, and tactile markings, were installed, ironically, the day I graduated. So I guess wow. I just have to come back to Western to make sure they're still there. <laughs> <laughs> and now you awesome. have to come back. Yeah. Um, I, for one, think that the sound for the audible uh, crosswalk should have been geese honking because I think that would fit Western's Western's uh, <laughs> brand <laughs> very well. But yes, absolutely. Understandably, that they need to be a little bit louder than a geese honking because they would get drowned out by all the rest of the geese that are on campus. <laughs> um, so you mentioned a lot, and it seems like you are a very, very busy, busy, busy person. When you transitioned, so you, you kind of mentioned that you were in the workforce and then you got, you did your master's and now you're doing your PhD. Um, mm -hmm. And you are obviously very, very passionate about it. Uh, what made you continue your education? Is it just a matter of trying to get even more involved and trying to be a better advocate for, um, is disabled the correct word or am I, am I wrong with that? 
Well, that's that's a great question. Um, maybe I'll start by answering that question. So there are different ways people like to be addressed. So some people prefer what they call person first language. So person with a disability. Some people prefer disabled person because uh, if we look at the social model of disability, we see that the environment disables us. So taking my example, it isn't that I can't cross the street, but if the signals aren't accessible and there's not uh, a tactile curb cut, it's the environment that's disabling me from crossing the street. So we take that one step further, perhaps there's not a blended curve. So somebody using a wheelchair or having um, a baby stroller that they're navigating isn't able to cross the street safely without that blended curb cut. So again, it's the environment disabling you. So disabled person kind of implies social model of disability. Sounds like that's a whole other podcast. Um, we tend not to use the disabled because it, it others um, a group uh, and we we want to sort of have a community minded whether rather than an us versus them model so myself personally i prefer disabled person because as you've heard off the top there's lots of barriers in our environment that disable me um, but i think back to your other question it's a great question and i get it a lot um, certainly you're right advocacy and pushing the agenda forward for myself and other members of the disability community is a big part of why I went back to school, but it's a little bit more personal. I worked in Frontline where I saw people who lived with pretty significant physical disabilities. Um, and they, a lot of times there wasn't community resources to promote a really engaged, rich, textured life in the community. Um, so for example, uh, if, if a person with a disability required an agency to come in and provide support in the home, it was that that support was structured around when it was convenient for the agency or that when it was convenient for that staff from the agency, not around the person's needs and wishes and, and wants. Um, or, for example, um, many clients I worked with had a, a capped number of hours of support they could receive in their home um, and that wasn't always enough so we were always problem solving together about how can we get really creative and flexible so I saw that and then I saw sort of things happening in my own um, family life around accessing to funding and what that meant for people in my own family and I thought I think the time is now to really look at how um, different models of support enable um, community participation. Wow. Um, yeah. So Elizabeth, I have so many questions um, yeah, concerning really the, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic situation yeah. as well. Uh, but before I go there, I have another question about your book in 2016 that you co-authored. Uh, and it's a detailed book on the, the creating a culture of accessibility um, for the sciences. Mm -hmm. And so you provided various insights and proposals as well uh, for the future in STEM or science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, and mathematics fields. And could mm -hmm. you share just a cup? Could you share just a couple of those um, advices or insights that you think really were helpful? Um, yes. Yeah, so this is, uh, I feel like everything's coming back to another Western story. So in 2010, when I started my master's, like everybody else, I had to take the dreaded statistics course, or maybe you guys all love statistics. I, I'm not a fan, um, but I had to take it. And there was a lot of graphs and charts and data and uh, scatter plots, and the list goes on. And I have um, 
still a good friend of mine and at the time had a wonderful tutor who was really creative and tried to work with me. But the biggest barrier was accessing that visual data and visual information. And it really impeded my ability to understand some of the critical concepts in the course. And so fast forward a few years, I was working with um, my co-author, Dr. Mahadeo Supai, and we were kind of talking about what some of those barriers were. Um, and he was approached to, to write a book and he invited me to co-author it and I'm really excited. And one of the things that I've just discovered that I'm super, super excited about is sonar graphs. So it's a gentleman at SAS, SAS graphics, and he takes visual graphs and he turns them into sound. So the X uh, line has uh, a certain pitch and then the Y uh, axis has a certain pitch and you can listen to these different pitches as it plays out a graph for you on your computer. It's really brilliant and I wish it was something that was around 10 plus years ago when I was in school. But I think aside from that, part of why I uh, co-authored the book is really about getting the message out to service providers, parents, educators, and even students that aside from STEM, it it's really about thinking creatively about how to navigate uh, barriers in education. So one chapter that I'm really proud of is the barrier around um, practical spaces so that whether that's co-op placements or whether that's uh, an occupational therapy lab or physical therapy lab and how to how to kind of access those as a student with a disability and you know some of the challenges around a lot of professional programs don't allow you to take um a part-time option or reduced course load so what what impact does that have on a student who might need more time to complete uh that coursework thank you so you mentioned um, it, it kind of piqued my interest because uh, I'm a I'm a geographer, so I make maps and I do a lot of GIS and stuff. So cool. you mentioned uh, you mentioned like being able to visually see see data, like how I guess I, I hope I'm using the right terminology and I don't want to offend anything. But as I guess as an able bodied person that can see that can touch that can hear that can do everything. I I take it for, I guess I take it for granted. Like I don't really question why there's a dip in the, in the, um, uh, in the sidewalk or if there's sounds going off or like I can be, I can read pages mm -hmm. and I can read data and stuff like that. How far do you think Western has to go before we can reach a fully inclusive campus that is available for everybody of all different walks of life so that way they can continue their education the way an able-bodied person can. Is that also the right terminology? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question and a great uh, yeah, able-bodied is is a is a fine um, term, um, at least from my perspective. I think one of the things that and I was just having this conversation with somebody today is a challenge not just for Western but for every post, not just post secondary but every institution that provides education is funding. So let's be honest, um, the Office for Students with Disabilities has a certain amount of, of funding that they're they're given to work with. And so the challenge is, um, you know, that impacts the services that students can get. So, you know, perhaps 
there are more students coming in every year, but the funding stays the same. So how do you offer services in a way that are robust? So I mean, one thing, for example, that I struggle with is that there's a lot of inconsistencies in terms of what different institutions offer. Some will offer a note taker in class, some will not. Some will offer tutoring services. Some say you're on your own, you gotta figure it out. Um, Carleton University, for example, offers to students with physical disabilities the option to have attendant services on campus. So what that means is if you're a student with a physical disability and you are attending Carleton University or Algonquin College and you're living in residence, you can have help with any of your uh, personal support needs from trained attendants on campus. So Carleton and Algonquin are the only ones that offer this service. Some universities like York partner with community agencies to offer it. Some universities just again say, that's your responsibility. So I guess what I'm, what I feel as a student, like there's a lot of inconsistencies when I talk with, um, I'm a part of a PhD and master's group for, for students who are blind. And I will mention something that Western has. So, you know, let's give Western a little cred here. They've got our, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's the bus that picks you up if you have a disability and takes you from class to right. class or yes um so they've right. got the the bus on campus for students with disabilities just on campus it's great i love that especially in the winter or if i was going to a building on campus that i didn't know how to get to uh or i wanted to go to the grad club and have an amazing grilled cheese and it's a snowy night uh perfect call the bus so to give Western a little credit, a lot of schools do not have that. Um, so consistency to me is huge. Like what what one school has, another may not. Um, and I think that's due in part, not in part, in large part to student advocates. So mm -hmm. um, I happen to know the person that advocated for that bus to be on campus. I'd like to think I did my little part uh, for some, some accessible pedestrian walk signals on campus. Um, and I think a lot of the times it falls to the student body to advocate uh, through organizations like SOGS or the undergraduate equivalent of SOGS. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so Elizabeth, we live in unprecedented times. I mean, the kinds of difficulties that we normally face are just made a lot worse given the pandemic. I wanted to know mm -hmm. more about your experiences as someone who's a vision impaired graduate student um, uh, and what, what you think, um, what unique difficulties you might face uh, in that situation as well. Uh, could you let us know more about your experiences in navigating sure. campus, for yeah, example? So so because of COVID, I haven't been to campus since October when I came to give a guest lecture at King's. Um, uh, I was supposed to come in March and then poof, COVID hit. Um, so I didn't come for that second guest lecture. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a couple of things. So it certainly impacted my everyone's ability to go to campus. For me as somebody with a visual disability, one thing I worry about when we gradually return in whatever form and shape that takes, how will I know where the social distancing measures have been put in place? So are there gonna be markers on the UCC floor telling me, stand this far behind the person in front of you in line and go get your food in this section and here's the PRL station. So how is all that gonna be marked? Um, you know, when, when you're navigating the, the UCC uh, food court, for example, or 
when you're in a lecture hall, knowing where to sit and what that signage is going to look like. Um, I think protocols to around wearing masks. So there's advantages to wearing masks. They keep us safe, but it's also hard for me to hear um, under um, when, when someone's wearing a mask, it's hard for me to understand them. If I'm wearing a mask, it's harder for me to, to hear my environment around me. Uh, for people that are deaf or hard of hearing, it's difficult for them to read lips. So all of these things play into what that experience is going to look like. But more importantly, I attended the, the town hall that um, Alan Shepard had a few weeks ago, um, and I didn't hear a whole lot of talk around what COVID planning looks like for students, um, not just for students with disabilities, but how it's going to include students with disabilities in that planning, especially around sort of the wayfinding and the signage piece. Uh, yeah, we need to <laughs> improve a lot in some of these areas, especially yeah. in basic communication as well. We recently had a town hall, but it didn't seem like a town hall since we we weren't really able to speak directly in any capacity, which was unfortunate. But we are heading in some good directions and more work, I guess, needs to be done. Uh, Reese, can I ask just one follow-up question on COVID as well? Yep. Sure, yeah. Um, so uh, while we're on this topic, I, I was really surprised. I shouldn't be surprised. And tell me if I'm mistaken about this. So, I mean, of course, the government says, we're looking after the most vulnerable people, especially when it comes to COVID-19. And so we have CESP, Canadian Emer um, Emergency Relief Benefit, roughly $2,000 for anyone who lost a job due to COVID-19, or CES, uh, C sorry, I think the first one was CERB, and the second one is CESB, the Canadian Emergency Relief uh, Benefit for Students. Um, now that's roughly $1,250 as well. Uh, but I, is it true that if you are getting, say, Ontario Disability Support Program funding, which is 12, uh, 11, 65, I think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so yeah. it's low, and you're not eligible for CERB and CESB, and yet you're getting a lower mm -hmm. fund, even though you're more vulnerable. So how does it feel um, when you hear statements that we're looking after the most vulnerable people, and yet it seems like somewhat the opposite is happening, or it's not happening yeah. the way it ought to happen. That's a great point. So I think a couple of things to unpack there. The 1165 that ODSP grants, and I, I can't speak to what it is for Ontario Works, I don't know, I, I know it's lower than 1165. That in Toronto, and I'm sure it's not that far off in London, that doesn't even cover rent. Uh, it does, ODSP is not keeping up with the cost of living. Um, not only is it not keeping up with the cost of living, it's not keeping up to the needs of people during COVID. So there was a $100 extra bonus you could apply for if you were on ODSP, but $100 doesn't get you very far. So maybe you're somebody living with a disability who's needing now to order groceries in to be delivered, as so many of my friends and colleagues do, because you're, you're not able to go out, you're, you're medically compromised, medically fragile. So you're ordering groceries in, well, that's not free. Somebody's gotta pay for that delivery. Oh, you're yeah. ordering PPE so that your support staff has PPE to wear. Um, you're maybe ordering um, 
perhaps more medical supplies than you would. You're more, you're ordering your your medications now via prescription, and you're paying for that. The list goes on of, of what you're paying for in addition, and the hundred bucks isn't cutting it. But yes, it is interesting that when a crisis hits in our world, and all of a sudden the able-bodied population needs support, it's here's two thousand a month. But when the disability population requires support, uh, whether that be financial or medical, it's here's 1175. And I think what that speaks to is the, the way in which our policies and society really devalue disability. And I think it's a very, based on a very sort of, um, un, I would say a, a notion around um, productivity, and and what it means to be productive and if you can't participate in sort of that, that capitalist productivity market because of your disability what does that you know what does that that say about how you are being supported by by our government i know a couple of my friends um she is in the same boat as probably some of your friends, she's had a heart transplant and she is severely, severely immunocompromised and she can't go, she can't go outside. She, it's, it's a matter of life or death for her. Um, and I know that a hundred dollars, like is, it's just enough to cover medication and just enough food. And with the increased cost of buying Lysol wipes and PPE and all of that stuff, it makes it very, very difficult. And along with almost this, the, the mental stigma as well, like the mm -hmm. people that are on ODSP, like they, um, they can't work, they it's preventing them from going to work. And now all of these able bodied people are inside and they're like, Oh, I don't know what to do, like all this kind of stuff. And then there's people that are on ODSP or on Ontario works or that kind of stuff. And that is their day to day life that they that they can't go outside that they can't, they're stuck inside, they don't know, like they have to keep themselves busy. And the shift in, I think now it's become more of a normal that like people are staying inside more and people have mm -hmm. hobbies and people all that kind of stuff. But that also comes at a cost. Like hobbies aren't free. Like yeah. there, are, there are things that are expensive and, and groceries are expensive and delivery costs are going up. And, and it's quite a shame that now that we're moving into like phase two and even into phase three that we're I think we're trying to, we're forgetting that the pandemic is still a thing and we're just trying to keep on like normal life. Yeah, that's really interesting. A couple of things you brought up for me um, really were striking there. So when this whole start, this whole thing, COVID thing started in March, I gave a guest lecture to the King's College Disability Studies class uh, around um, one of the disability studies courses um, around crip wisdom. And so the idea that, hey, as someone with a disability, I might be really used to being inside and having a lot of my connections via the internet and having to order groceries online and having to bank online. It's amazing how many of my friends, totally able-bodied, including my parents, were calling me in March being like, help, I've never ordered anything online. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, yeah, I got this. I've been doing this for a decade. So it's really cool that we have something to teach. But kind of simultaneously at the same time, it's really interesting how things that were once seen as this accommodation in air quotes are now just normal. So working at home is something that I'm really familiar with. I've done it for years. I'm lucky I've had employers that have been very supportive, but a lot of 
my friends and colleagues in the disability community have said, whoa, now everybody's working at home and it's the norm. I've tried to advocate because of my health needs to work at home for years and it was just never possible. But now we have a pandemic and we can. Or um, another really interesting thing is how We've been really creative about how we socialize. And I hope that as much as sometimes at the end of a day, I just want nothing more than to shut Zoom down for the night and run from Zoom. I hope we don't lose some of these great online meetings because for some people, they're the only outlet. So the Zoom chats, the Zoom pub nights, the Zoom trivias, the whatever is the online uh, tutorials that some of some profs have been doing. Um, they are the outlet for some people and i hope that we don't lose those when we go back to whatever semblance of normal we go back to because for some people this is this has actually opened up their world COVID has really said taken a world that was four walls in an apartment and and brought to that person a whole realm of activities uh, available online well elizabeth thank you very much and um, I guess we're just about to uh, at the end of our show. So uh, is there any social media links uh, that you would like to share with us with, with anyone yeah, who may want to get sure. in touch with you? Sure, go ahead. So you can follow me at Twitter. Uh, so on Twitter, so at Moeller, M-O-H-L-E-R, the letter C. So at M-O-H-L-E-R-C, and I'll make sure that that's in your um, transcript as well. And you can also, sure. of course, find me on LinkedIn, Elizabeth Muller, Facebook, Elizabeth Muller. Um, and I do have a blog called The Writer's Table, and I'll pop that in the transcript as well. Well, thank you so much. And I, I, I think we would probably have you again on our show once you start your PhD. Uh, we'll discuss more about your research in particular and what you've been doing uh, at that time. Now, um, well, uh, I guess this is at the end. So this has been the GradCast official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Yusuf, and my co-host was... Reese Patterson. Yes, and we've been speaking with Elizabeth Moller, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email, at, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on the radio at chrw94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or our on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.